how do you deliver the you know the excess energy back to the grid how does that work and how they get energy credit for that so um our projects are grid tied we tie into the customer side of the transformer um, so we will sometimes we'll install a breaker in their sub panel and we'll be flooding their breaker with solar energy when it's present. But in the moments that there's less consumption at the facility than our production, our energy gets taken back through the utility transformer and gets put back up on the grid. Uh-huh. And the way that's measured is that um, whatever utility we're dealing with, whatever invest, if it's an investor owned utility that we're dealing with, will usually come in and put a uh, bi-directional meter on. All right. So it like rotates one, one direction um, if it's consuming and rotates the other if it's producing. And then um, that's how they get the credits transport transposed to their bills. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Before we jump into today's show with PSG Energy Group and how solar is helping address climate change concerns, I want to take a moment and ask the listeners to help out the show. I need the ET Nation to help us elevate the podcast on the major podcast networks. In order to do that, we need listeners to write reviews and rate us on Apple Podcasts and YouTube for each episode you listen to. This will ensure that we start showing up on search engines when people are looking for an environmental podcast topic. To make the review process easy, you can go to my website at www.seankgrady.com and leave a review and a rating there. By doing this, it will automatically be submitted to the proper networks for maximum search engine optimization. Or you can leave a review within your podcast app. I want to thank you and the ET Nation for all your support. And now let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, listeners. Today's guests uh, are Jennifer Marzlack and Michaela Bell, and uh, they both work for PSG Energy Group. And we're going to talk about solar energy and how solar is being introduced into the energy grid and how that works. So before we get in, I want to get a little bit of some background for you guys on who is PSG? And Jennifer, maybe you can give us a little uh, idea of you know a little bit about yourself and PSG Energy Group. Sure. Sounds good. Um, thank you, Sean. We appreciate you having myself and Michaela on today and sure. we look forward to the discussion. Um, yeah. All right. So I'm Jennifer Merzlach. I grew up in the Midwest um, in Illinois. Indiana is really a second home for me. I went to Rose Holman, um, then was all over the place, most recently 10 years in Pittsburgh um, and really doing everything. Did engineering. I say I'm a retired engineer, not not so much. Always. Uh, went to business school in Pittsburgh, worked in a number of different fields, but always had an interest and passion around energy and had an opportunity to come back to Indiana and be in renewables. So I, I made that switch in 2017. And PSG Energy Group is 
a part of the Envelope Group portfolio. So it's we're based headquartered in downtown Indianapolis. We are mm-hmm. we are growing throughout the country. So the our parent company has locations in Ohio, Florida, and North Carolina as well. Okay. Uh, but what makes it unique for PSG is we focus, and you'll you'll hear that as it comes through probably in the discussion. We focus on on-site renewables. Um, and the biggest thing there is understanding the facility and its consumptions. And so with our sister companies that are HVAC efficiency, building controls and automation and building technology, mm-hmm. we have the option of really being a partner to the client and coming in and pushing down consumption, finding any opportunities there to reduce your consumption and then look at offsetting your consumption. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, so, uh, talk a little bit about, um, Michaela, what, what your role at PSG and, and how, uh, you're, you're involved. Yeah. Um, so my name's Michaela Bell. I have always been interested in physics and, and solar energy and battery technology. And I actually um, went to school for those topics. Sure. So I've got a degree in physics and went on to mechanical engineering and, um, PSG was a great fit for me. So I joined the PSG team as a design engineer and uh, my roles kind of morphed into overseeing the construction aspects of the um, projects too. Right, right. Um, so I do a little bit of everything at, at PSG and I've been with the company for about three years and um, continue to love solar energy. Oh, that's good. Well, you know, solar seems to be one of those renewables that uh, is 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 a, a renewable that can really help offset, you know, this the big climate change uh, concerns I think we have as a society. And you know, I think understanding how solar fits in to the equation and and where it can fit in and and really help reduce, uh, you know, fossil fuel consumption is kind of key here. And, and part of the, one of the reasons I wanted to do the interview. Uh, with Jennifer and the PSG group was I wanted to learn more about, you know, solar and and how does that really um, fit into, you know, the whole equations of, of, you know, can solar really be, you know, kind of like that silver bullet to help us, you know, get off of fossil fuels um, and stop using them uh, and be sustainable that way. And so I guess before we jump into, you know, some of the questions we have around, you know, does it make sense and things like that, but Maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, do a little remedial education here. You know, let's talk to the listeners and just give them, you know, the background of like how does solar really work, you know, because not everyone probably understands the the ins and outs of it. It sounds like, yeah, you put a panel up and I get energy. Well, I mean, okay, that's part of it, but that maybe not be the whole part of it. So maybe you guys could break this down a little bit for our listeners so, so we can understand it just a little more before we get into some more questions. Sure. I got you. Um, so the fundamentals of, of solar energy really come from Einstein's discoveries. Obviously, it all comes from Einstein. But um, that light, like a beam of light, acts as both a wave and a particle. Um, so that's really where it all stems from. And then also, um, one of the ways that was discovered was seeing how light behaves on the surface of a metal. Mm-hmm. And finding out that what happens is that fo- the particle part of a wave, which we call a photon, um, can physically knock an electron out of place off the surface of a metal. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we get moving electrons, we have electricity. Um, so we take advantage of 
you know, since then we've discovered to take advantage of silicone metal, a high, uh, conductive material that is has a, stru a structure that's easy to to dope, um, meaning that we can add an electron in one layer of the structure, and then that's the electron that, when light hits it, it physically physically gets knocked off, and oh, then it? create a path for its delivery where it needs to go. And so these solar panels have like a collection system of some way or a conductive system some way. So that when the rays hit it, it's able to, you know, direct that current somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So there's um, a path to, there's a circuitry involved in a solar panel. Um, and the, there's a path to an, uh, a, a delivery point. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, you string on, you string along these panels together, right? In, in sort of a series, um, you know, one after another, and then the the power gets, you know, kind of directed to what uh, some sort of a collection system or or uh, some transformer or something. Um, well, first we go to an inverter because our energy from the sun is in direct current. Okay. Um, and most energy source energy that we need to be need to be supplying in the United States is um, three phase alternating current. Uh -huh. So we take our strings of solar panels to an inverter where it gets transformed into AC current. So that's okay. that's the second big component of a solar field. Um, and then other components would be whatever the racking system is, which is very versatile. Um, could be cardboards, could be roof mount, could be ground mount. And then third is wherever the interconnection point is. And sometimes there's miscellaneous equipment along the way, such as transformers. Okay. All right. So it's a little complex. I mean, it's not just straightforward. There's a lot of electrical uh, grid type uh, electricity things to consider. And, you know, you probably need certified electricians and people like that to actually do this work. You know, it's not like you could just do it yourself, right? Oh, yeah, that's the best idea. <laughs> that's why we that's why people hire psg energy right exactly. <laughs> all right well okay so we got a little background on on how this solar thing you know works a little bit i think that's a good well what are the biggest trends you guys are seeing in the solar industry right now yeah sean i can talk to that i think um the first trend is something that's more obvious and just right at the surface is two two driving fact well every factor Every project comes to fruition if it makes sense money-wise, right? So uh -huh. even um, if you want to do do right, it really has to pencil out still. So the biggest factors are the rising cost in utilities we're seeing here in Indiana and across the country, right. and then the reduced cost in the system cost. So um, and now that there's some economy of scales to that, but overall the system costs have come down. If you look back in the last 10, 15 years, the cost. Uh -huh. And the projects has come down. So that right there makes more projects feasible, um, gets people thinking beyond the environmental and sustainable side of it into operating cost savings. Uh -huh. And I'd say, you know, second to that, I don't even know if you'd say second, but what you see is more outside pressure. So you're going to see consumer driven, right? People, you know, um, putting their wallet, putting their money behind what they believe right. in. You're going to see yeah. the new generations for sure. And you almost see it. I hate to say this guy probably fall in the middle, but you almost see it in like bookend generations. So there's the older generations that are 
you know, preparing of like, what am I leaving the world as and what do I want to do? And then there's the younger generations that see what's ahead of them and want to make the change. Uh And then um, for better or for worse, there's going to be like political pressure, right? Policy changes. We'll be pushing yeah, real hard on it. Uh, I've noticed a big trend. I mean, just in the consumer approach to why people want it, you know, uh, I think that more and more people will start to demand, you know, alternative um, renewables in, in, in the commodities or the things they're yeah. purchasing. And I think that's going to be a I huge think so. I think so too. I mean, we glossed over my career because it is, it is pretty varied and it could take the hour probably. But um, I did in the Earl, well, like 2007 to nine, mm-hmm. uh, worked on some full-time and some while I was in my MBA of a a company insight rising. We really developed sustainability reports. So that was in the early days. Um, Fortune 500 companies would publish a sustainability report along with their annual report. And it was early on. So we would do baseline audits and then put together action plans. And some would wait for two years to publish it. So they'd have something to show against the baseline. But I think you see now that that's more the exception. Most of the companies have the sustainability aspect right into their annual report. I mean, it's talked about investor calls, it's an annual reports, it's being tracked. And it's even in product marketing, you you know, you see Coors Light has commercials with solar panels and so forth. Like you, you see it across. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, environmental social governance seems to be a big push and, and why, you know, solar is going to be uh, an option for a lot of the the uh, companies to reduce their greenhouse gas emission uh, yeah. impacts, right? And so they're going to be looking for these options or these uh, opportunities to make a difference there. And and they're going to view solar as one of those aspects that I can achieve uh, some greenhouse gas credits or reductions if I do this. And so from a big, uh, probably from a good corporate citizen perspective, they're going to do that and, and essentially put their money where their mouth is in a sense, like you mentioned, right? Yeah, and you see it across the sectors. In B2B, you can get um, vendor priority. I have preferred status. Um, Obviously, like municipalities, universities see it as a way to attract talent, to get people to move in Mm -hmm. to theirs. I do think, you know, I don't know, we Shahina, at some point, and you alluded to it earlier, it's solar is going to be one piece of the puzzle. It's not the full solution, right? But, um, you know, where we find with our on-site solar, we realize one, it's most, uh, most CNI, you're not going to cover hundred percent offset with putting solar on site. You're going to get limited by utility um, capacity, like maximums you could have with the partnering utility and, or just your real estate. You're going to run a rooftop or ground mount capacity. Um, but it is complementary to everything else you're doing. Right. So I think there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes that consumers aren't as aware of the HVAC equipment you put in, controls you put in. Um, it can really drive down consumption, but it's also not considered, you know, sexy and exciting. And you can invest in or purchase renewable energy from a much larger system somewhere, but often that could be far away, maybe not even in your state. So adding on-site solar gives the visibility, the tangible impact for, you know, your clients, your employees, the community. Yeah. And then if you look at, you know, we're in many sectors. If you look at school districts, 
we're often very close to 100% offset for those schools. And we'll, we'll talk about net metering later on here, but there's some, there's some situations where you, you can get to that 100% offset. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, so how does someone go about determining if they're a good candidate to install a solar array, you know, on their building? And, and I think more, more commercial buildings, I guess we're going to talk about really that focus than, than maybe residential, but, you know, let's start with that, that commercial approach. I mean, how does one figure that out? Well, I would say that most, the most influential factor is their consumption load and their rate tariff. Um, but a lot of it is, are they, um, what kind of consumption, do they have a lot of energy happening at one point in time or is it spread out across the day? Because solar obviously is, is at peak production in the middle of the day and that's where we would get the maximum offset. So, um, so being able to look at their bills and, and determine exactly when they use their electricity can help us determine if what type of solar system would be good for them. Um, mm -hmm you know, and uh, how exactly we could get to the most optimal offset for them. Um, rate tariffs do make a big difference in solar arrays. You know, if they're on a rate tariff that has a high demand factor, which that's your energy at one time is your demand in the, in the electricity world, um, it's less likely that uh, you know, sometimes that can hinder solar production because we offset so we we offset electricity usage over time. Um, not necessarily, we can't guarantee at one second how much we'll be offsetting their solar their their consumption load. Um, so rate tariffs do make a big difference, and many times when we go through a project, we can talk to, and, and if they qualify for a rate tariff change, we can add that into the analysis and the payback analysis. Um, if what what would happen if they change the rate rate tariff? Mm -hmm. I think that to kind of summarize that or jump in, um, I think that's a good point. You could think about that at the residential end too, is that you can't take your utility bill and divide it by your usage, your kilowatt hours and say, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's the factor to look at for the offset. You have to look at your demand charges, your energy charges, um, anything else, customer charges. So mm -hmm. oh, the, the other fees. <laughs> yeah. So, and then when you dive into the riders, they're usually, incremental or demand related, but basically solar impacts all your incremental usage. Um, we do think, you know, demand should get um, impacted to the benefit to lower, but again, if a thunderstorm rolls through, or if we look at your interval data usage and you have peaks in the middle of the night, solar is not going to help that. So it's not something you could depend on. So we, we often don't touch that part when we're doing the payback analysis. And if, you know, if that comes in, that's some extra savings for the customers. But the realistic view is to just look at your incremental offset. Okay. All right. So as part of the assessment and you're doing this, um, you know, breakdown of their energy consumption, and I'm sure, I'm assuming you're, you're break, you're, you're evaluating the, uh, the energy bills, you know, what their yeah. hourly consumption rate is and, and uh, breaking, looking at that in depth, you know how much, how many kilowatts hours are using uh, for energy. But what other things do you do to evaluate uh, a property or a building that may not be the, you know, it's that's outside of just the the the, the energy bill, right? Like you mentioned earlier, going around looking at ways to reduce consumption. Talk about what you do there to see if that factors into your assessment of the ROI. 
Yeah, well, we um, you look at lighting. Lighting's probably some most low-hanging fruit and pairs well uh -huh. with the projects. Most people still have options to get LED rebates from the utility. Uh -huh. So we definitely look into the lighting. Um, and along with that goes, you know, controls with the lighting. Um, again, we can lean on what I'd say our sister companies are to do some rough energy audits, you know, knowing the square footage and their utility usage, we can do some comparables to counterparts. And um, if they're if they're using more energy than you would anticipate, there's usually something you could dig into further. The age of the HVAC equipment, um, all that uh -huh. would come into play. Um, and then, and so like we said, we've talked a lot about that there's policies, incentives and so forth. So we'll say it doesn't all happen in a sequential order. So you may do your solar and then come back or, and do some of these other fixes. And sometimes you can justify some of this operational cost savings you're having with your solar to invest in your facilities so you can do an HVAC upgrade in a few years. Okay, right. But we uh -huh. do size of what your future consumption is. So if we think there's those opportunities. We won't start at 100% offset. We'll target 85% offset um, because, again, we don't want to oversize, have you pay more for a system and build a larger system than what you really need. Um, so we so will... Look at that. So when we talk about systems and and the types of solar panels and and the, what's the you know is it beneficial to invest in solar power today? I mean, most companies or, or public institutions, you know, they're looking at this going, well, you know, I think there's a, a payback, you know, but is it far enough out that it doesn't make sense, or is it you know how fast can can you expect to see a return on investment? Yeah, I can talk to that. And I'd also say one of the benefits of solar is it is a, it's measurable. So we put in, the utility puts in a bi-directional meter. We put in production grade meters. Um, so we, you know, we can talk through most of our systems. We have a software that lets you see um, on the front end what's being produced. And on the back end, we can get any alerts and do, you know, remote diagnostics. Uh -huh. But it is measurable. So you're going to be able to track it. And what helps with that too is, we have historical projects to look at and sure. proven track records, not only PSG, but across the industry to show that the technology is working and with weather patterns and everything. Um, but we are, you know, the, there's opportunities where the payback can be earlier. You could get grants to go with it on the USDA library. There's a whole, there's a whole bunch of like that. It's like college scholarships. You could start digging around and get some grant money, which helps. But we're seeing a lot of commercial projects, you know, at five to eight year time frame. Um, the ones that fall in there make sense and are moving okay. forward, maybe even to 10 years, right? If there's a big sustainability push, right? And it's, you know, marketing and some other ways you could say. And then I would say in the public projects, schools and universities and municipalities that go forward, it's more a 10 to 15 year payback. Again, so we'll do it more. But the, the nice thing is those paybacks align with their vision. So, you know, schools, municipalities, higher ed have a long-term vision. They're like, yeah. we're going to be here yeah. in 20, 40 years. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. They're going to be around. They're, they're institutions. They're, yeah. you know, they're, for, they're around forever. So and that's then, good to know. Yeah. Commercial, I think, you know, we run into a lot of people want shorter. They want two to three-year paybacks. Right. But you do have to weigh it with the incentives that are there now. So some people, um, some companies and organizations, if they've made pledges or if they have the initiative 
or being held to the standards internally by investors, they may typically not do a five-year payback. But if they're in a situation where in a window, if they wait another two years, that payback jumps maybe to 10 years, they're going to act now. Well, like, with the, yeah, is- with everyone now, you know, pushing, hey, we're zero net carbon by 2030 or 2035, you know, there are a lot of companies are putting a lot of, you know, a lot of um, goals out there to it. You know, they're going to achieve uh, some major milestones. And, you know, how are they going to do that? I mean, there's yeah. there's only a few ways you can really get there. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got uh, solar, you got probably wind, you've got, you know, reducing energy yeah. consumption, you've got, you know, a lot of different things uh, as part of, you know, the supply chain and everything else. So uh, they're going to be looking for all these inputs, right? Right. And timing wise, I'd say now in the next few years, you're, you're in this sweet spot that pricing has come down, but the mm-hmm. tax, the federal tax credits still exist. Right. So, yeah. Well, we, that no, was, and that's kind of one of the incentives, right? Yeah. That's one of the incentives. And it's, it's phasing out. It was just extended 26% for the next two years, but it isn't a step, down phase. Um, with the new administration, we may expect or anticipate it to be um, extended longer or even potentially voluntary increases. Um, mm-hmm. With that may come some more requirements and so forth, right? But you are, you're in this sweet phase. Tax Investment tax credits, federal incentives like that are put in to incentivize and get, get people moving and, and get the action to happen, right? And help curb or offset the larger investment in cost. But we're kind of at that top where it's starting to make sense that they can be paid back. You know, we're getting 10, 15 years payback for some schools with leaving the ITC on the table, right? So you these projects can pencil out now. Well, that's, I mean, I mean. So if you have the advantage of using this, and that's why I was saying that, you know, people may open open their eyes or their limits and jump from that two-year payback to a five-year payback because. Yeah, they're getting, they're getting the tax credit. It makes it more affordable and, and right. Um, So what are some of the factors that you consider when you're buying solar panels and, and, or in, and I had another question kind of related, should you buy or should you lease program, you know, kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think that's interesting because it might allow, you know, people who want to get into the solar market, you know, a little easier from a lease perspective and a, a buy perspective, uh, kind of like your cars, right? So talk about that a little bit, if you could, and some factors in buying, you know, in, you know, yeah. different polar or solar well, panel type things. It's it's different in Indiana than other states. You can have um, black and white third party ownership in some of our neighboring states, mm-hmm. and I think the biggest advantage there on top of, you know, not putting money down is the facility itself doesn't have the O&M uh, responsibility. And so that's nice for school district. It's nice for anywhere where it's not your core, right? Your core focus. But for a school district, it's nice that you're not putting more on the facilities team that somebody else has that that's O&M responsibility. Yeah. yeah. But now as far as lease or purchase, uh, a lot of what we deal with in Indiana is just looking at them is there cash on hand or is it going to be financed and it's more along those lines there is um for the public entities there's opportunities to get zero down low interest rate about 20 years typically is the term mm-hmm. um, these would qualify for energy savings programs and then again there are um 
a lot of institutions that want to do operating leases and so forth and that you, you kind of have the option like an a technically an operating lease if that's a banker investor coming in they're going to take the itc and the depreciation and that gives you an opportunity to have less out-of-pocket costs um but we also see a lot of CNI and AG that are interested in having that tax credit. So they'll finance it on their own, like they would finance any sort of thing, you know, working capital or other capital investment projects they'd have. What affects the performance of solar systems? And and is the Midwest a really good location for solar? <laughs> Every location is a good location for solar. Perfect. Good like good answer to that. So yeah, I mean, relative to the rest of the country, Indiana has a low irradiance factor um, compared to Florida or California, but that doesn't make it a bad place to install solar fields. It just changes how we design them. So we'll have to, you know, make sure that we oversize the DC portion of the solar field. We add a, little, a few extra panels and we really, then it would be on the AC side to make sure that we're capturing as much sunlight as possible. Um, so that's one thing we make sure to do, especially here in Indiana and knowing our radiance level. And sh yeah, so shading would be one of them, weather in Indiana, of course, we have to deal with snow and soiling and um, factors than the rest of the country. Um, but putting that into our model and making sure that we design our model to offset the consumption and knowing exactly where we are in, this, in the country um, still makes these projects good ones. Hey listeners, if you're looking for a drilling and an environmental contracting firm to help you delineate the extent of contamination at your site, well look no further than Cascade Environmental. They are the only field services contractor with the personnel and equipment needed to work with you from project conception to completion. Cascade has over 37 offices across the country and offers a huge range of environmental and geotechnical drilling, site characterization, and remediation services. Thanks to their technical expertise, huge fleet of equipment, and nationwide coverage, Cascade is a great choice to support your environmental and infrastructure project needs. To learn more, check them out at www.cascade-env.com. That's www.cascade-env.com. So when you design the system, you know, in the winter, you probably have a lower production, right? So do you kind of default to the, the lower production, you know, capabilities during the winter for the system on average versus like the whole entire system? Or how do you account for that weather? Yeah. Type of we we um, have research data um, publicly available from NREL, um, National um, Renewable Energy Lab, on what the soiling for our latitude and longitude is. Mm -hmm. So we put we make sure that our designs include, you know, what the realistic ex expectations of the weather in the winters versus the summer months. Um, so we do make sure that the winter months have the reflected soiling, but also make sure that the summer months months have the reflected sunshine. Yeah, and we do have projects now that have been installed for three plus years right here in Indiana. So we do take that research data Michaela was saying, but we have live performance data from our systems that we can tweak a little bit too and see and see yeah. how it is. Um, Very good point. There's the line of being too conservative and then overpromising as well. And we, we keep it realistic, but our, our design, um, our software and our methodology allows you to 
to go in granular um, at the monthly level or even more if you wanted to, to account for that um, throughout. And then I think one thing I wanted to hit on was just the infrastructure of the local site. I think we've danced around it and haven't really hit on it, but shading is important. You know, other buildings around, equipment on the roof, trees in the area, um, the age and the type of your roof all come into factors. Um, we, and we have some school districts in Illinois that we're working with that we're, we're kind of following them around as they're investing in new roofs and solar's going on top afterwards because it's the okay. right timing for that. These, these projects, you know, you're looking at, even though we're talking about payback, that could be in that 10 to 15 year range, you're looking at dedicating that space, you know, your rooftop, your grandma, whatever, for 30 to 40 years. Uh -huh. Long-term investment we're talking about. So you want to make sure your roof is in the right condition. Um, the structural itself. So we do do structural analysis studies. Um, the electrical infrastructure. And then there's a lot of <laughs> technicality to that part. And then at the ground mount, um, you, we do look at the subsurface conditions and everything as well and floodplains and, and all that. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, well, okay, so you're you're collecting the energy off of your solar array that you've got on your roofs uh, that you've installed. How do you deliver the you know the excess energy back to the grid? How does that work, and how do they get energy credit for that? So um, our projects are grid tied. We tie into the customer side of the transformer. Um, so we will sometimes we'll install a breaker in their sub panel and we'll be flooding their breaker with solar energy when it's present. But in the moments that there's less consumption at the facility than our production, our energy gets taken back through the utility transformer and gets put back up on the grid. Uh -huh. And the way that's measured is that, um, Whatever utility we're dealing with, whatever invest, if it's an investor-owned utility that we're dealing with, will usually come in and put a uh, bidirectional meter on. All right. So it like rotates one one direction um, if it's consuming, and rotates the other if it's producing, and then um, that's how they get the credits transport transposed to their bills. So I've heard that, you know, a lot of the utility infrastructure in our country has been really designed for a one-way delivery system, yeah. right? Uh, which has been, you know, the power is generated at the power station and it goes out to the, 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 you know, the consumers and their homes and their, you know, buildings. And how is the systems or the, the structures that we currently have with the utility networks, are they really set up to accept a lot of, renewable energies into the grid. Uh, no, that's a good point, Sean. And so we, you know, because of where the incentives lie, we're spending most of our time with um, clients that are on an investor-owned utility. That's one of the large ones, the Duke, the NIPSCOs, IPL, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So most of their utility infrastructure can handle it. Now, each utility has its, um, e each time you put an interconnection and in Indiana, net metering and interconnection applications are one and the same, they will review it, right? So they know the exact location and they know their infrastructure. And sometimes it'll require a secondary or an infrastructure analysis. Um, the net metering incentive in Indiana is a one megawatt cap, but some of the specific utilities will have more of like a, a step up cap. Like they'll have one lower than a megawatt that will require an infrastructure study. Mm -hmm. That typically means that they will have to do some investment 
into the um, their infrastructure in that area, and then the project has to carry that cost. So we do take that all into wow. account. Um, and so you can, uh, we've had it go both ways. We've had it where the consumption at the site justifies going all the way to that one megawatt and it can absorb that infrastructure investment on the utility, or we have it where it's somewhere in between and we decide to go underneath that where their limitations are and just, you know, downsize the array. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's, that's something to do. And then the other portion is, Part of it is they don't want you to become a utility yourself, but two, it is because of the infrastructure. You have that one megawatt cap, but the next thing you need to think about is 110% of your 12 month usage. So they don't want it to flood it, right? So if you're talking about, um, like we do municipality projects, we'll do multiple sites. We're talking about a firehouse that maybe has a bunch of land behind it. You're still looking at doing a smaller system uh-huh. You're not gonna, you know, you there. You're talking about, um, you know, fifty kilowatts, maybe two hundred kilowatt system. You're not talking about a megawatt system. They're not gonna let you build something that is X times the amount of usage you have. So you you get that flexibility of up to one hundred and ten percent of your past twelve months. And if you're gotcha. doing, I mean, the utilities will work with you if you're doing a big expansion. Um, right. Hey, I'm gonna, you know, add another, you know, a few warehouse buildings here, and I want to, you know, size right. up, right? You can you can go about that, and that's kind of the exception, not the norm. But they'll work with you on it. Otherwise, they're protecting themselves because the the thought is on sunny summer days you're going to be overproducing. Um, the nice thing, if you know, they do have to have the infrastructure, but that's also you know the middle of the summer, the middle of the day could be their highest cost of producing or acquiring energy. So it it does actually help the utility at that point. Um, yeah. But you're not constantly overproducing and sending it back. So but, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a company who wants to get out there and do this, right. I mean, and, and you want to start a construction project, it sounds to me like, you know, the existing buildings uh, array, you got, you know, you got to time it with a new, new roof going on. Typically it sounds like, yeah, that's kind of like the ideal like scenario, or at least one that's been recently put on that, yeah, you know, yeah, that's going to have some life. Yeah. Life on it. Right. Um, but so, I mean, timelines of, you know, what's the expectation of getting like utilities to approve projects? Because it sounds like you have to do quite a bit of work with them to really get buy off on your projects too, right? Well, the, the more, I guess kind of anything in life, the more you invest up front, the, the better it's going to be for you. So there is a due diligence period mm-hmm. that typically, you know, it could be, you know, beyond a few weeks. It's sometimes a few months with clients, but the more prepared you are, then the smoother the whole construction project will be and the interconnection process. Sure. The utilities, I mean, they kind of rule and get to dictate the schedule somewhat. Yeah. I'd, I'd say overall, um, it's rare, even when you partner with somebody that it goes through in the first time, they'll come back with questions. But as we run into each project has its own nuances um, and they do, they do come back, but they're also in general, um, timely in their, their manners. I mean, it takes some follow-up, but they're also timely in their fashion. Are there agreements that you have to sign up for when you, you know, do this with the, the utilities? Cause I, I can't imagine you just like, Hey, going to connect and I want you to come <laughs> approve this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, this is a good point maybe to jump in. We, again, we do a lot of focus on investor owned 
in that region. And that's because the incentives lie there right now with the full retail rate net metering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do, we do look at projects with REMC or municipality, municipal utilities. Uh, and that really opens up another whole can of worms of each one could have its own limits. Um, you may find that if you're installing something 25 kilowatts or less, it can still be a pretty smooth process. But after that, mm-hmm. um, there's a difference. So their threshold of where their infrastructure is, the state of their infrastructure is usually much lower than the investor-owned utilities. So in that case, we'll do studies sooner. Or if you're with an REMC, small system could be if you're partnering REMC, larger, you're going to be working with Hoosier Energy and so forth. So they're there is nuances to all those. They don't have to offer retail rate net metering um, in their, their caps and what they value export at is going to vary greatly and what you need to do would vary. But I, um, I think one thing we're finding is a lot of the employees, even at investor owned, the engineers that come out to the field, I mean, they get excited. It's something exciting. It's something innovative right. in the, the industry. So they, they do want to help. And I would say a lot of um, the large utilities, you know, have client customer relations and they do want to do good by their clients and help them meet their needs. I, I got to imagine there's a bit of a, a dichotomy in the, uh, you know, uh, energy yeah. companies saying, yeah, I, let's just, I'll take all your extra energy because they yeah. want to get paid to, you know, <laughs> make the energy and deliver it. And then you, they're saying, no, we'll go ahead and buy it from you so we can deliver it. Uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, it, it is a paradigm little, here. And I'd say right now, in all honesty, it's to the advantage of the, the customer because the utility is acting as your free storage right now. Um, gotcha. Because they are transporting it, you know, they're, the export and what they're bringing back to you, you're not paying for that portion of it. So it is is great going forward. It's kind of yet to see, and we'll know more in the next few months, in the next few years, how they value it. Um, it's thought that it's going to be 1.25 factor of wholesale. Um, we'll see if it, you know, it sticks to that or how detailed it gets. But then you're looking at the utility still acting as your storage system, but it's costing you something. Yeah. And that, so that's a good point. And we haven't really talked about that, but in just thinking the concept of the utility being the storage of your excess energy that you're producing. So the other way to collect storage or, you know, to, to do storage is what through batteries, right? And, and is that a feasible scenario with the type of commercial buildings uh, that, you know, that you would be designing or would that be more appropriate for smaller systems? Most of our projects are on the grid tied, uh-huh. grid tied projects, um, and we work with our manufacturers um, and our our contacts who either have storage possibilities for hum- humongous projects or <laughs> residential projects, and not necessarily in between. Um, and it, and if those humongous projects, we wouldn't want to offer that to an in between project because financially it's not going to make sense. Yeah, right. No, I gotta imagine like big battery storage. That's a that's probably a little more expensive. Obviously, I would imagine, right? Yeah. So it's it's emerging technology, and we're really interested in learning more about it and incorporating more about it. But and you know, talking about trends, I'd say yeah. that R and D trend, right? That um, solar we're seeing 
We're seeing incremental improvements in the efficiency of panels, but it's all fairly much like incremental at this point. They've made the leaps and bounds and I think they sold the key components of the solar equipment. There's still gonna be improvements, but you see a lot of the focus on the storage component and making that you know, price effective because that is not just the solar, but to win to any renewable, that's clutch, right? Is if you can store it and continue to use it. So I think, again, for those that are, um, are getting in now and have the retail rate and you have until July of 2022 to get your systems installed in Indiana, you get this window of time. You're going to have 10 years that you're going to get retail rate net metering and that allows storage R&D to develop it to become more commercialized, more readily available. And you're not going to put your solar array. It's not going to become obsolete. So there was still need to be some electrical engineering and some construction work out there, right, to incorporate the storage, but you're not going to obsolete your array. It's going to add on to your array. So is it easy to upgrade, you know, retrofit, uh, you know, enhance, you know, existing systems that you, you know, may install now and say five years, 10 years from now, you know, better designed uh, panels come out or better interconnects or whatever. I mean, how, how easy is it going to be to make changes if you need to or want to just because you can get more value out of it? Well, I think you bring up a good point because there's, you know, when we talk about trends, you can look and dive into all these different areas. But there's two things we are seeing with equipment replacement. If you're looking out, especially on the West Coast, systems that have been in 10 plus years, uh -huh. um, the wattage of the panels has drastically changed the same footprint, right? So, I mean, even systems we installed in 2018, having you know, 300 watt panels, and now we're looking at 450 watt panels for our projects. Um, but so if you think back, you got systems out there with like 200 watt panels, people are going in, keeping the same racking infrastructure and changing uh -huh. out the panels. Gotcha. Um, we may, I wouldn't anticipate us even considering that until maybe inverters need to be flipped over. So we do plan that inverters would be replaced once during that 30 to 40 year lifetime. So you could look at it then. Um, when, you, when you're thinking about, or we go down the line of inverters, a trend we're seeing, and uh, I don't know how much it's really being executed, but it's being studied is inverters there's a there's a few things we kind of skipped over that but you can have um micro inverters strain inverters and what would you call the the main one michaela i, I can't even think of its name right now the central inverter. central inverter thank you yeah. <laughs> like central inverter so with that i mean you can think of this each um each inverter is going to perform to the weakest link so you got a strings of panels and you got you know number of panels on each string it's going to perform to the weakest link or when an inverter goes down that section of the array is down so right. there's a lot of older projects or older utility scale that have central inverters um it was cost effective or that's what existed to have 250 kilowatt inverters and now it's cost effective to have 50 or 36 kilowatt inverters so you do see um, projects that are looking at can we go away from the central inverter and split this up and go to the other inverters and that just spring yeah yeah to the screen i mean that helps everyday performance but it really helps that if your inverter goes down you're only losing a portion of your field and not the whole field and then it helps you know as you go through o and m you don't have to shut down the whole field to do to do the preventative yeah. yeah 
Well, okay, so let's talk about the panels real quick. I'm curious because I was doing some research on this topic and I'm like, you know, a general panel, like is if it's if it's a 325 kilowatts and then you've got these now they're out there they're like 450 or whatever like what's the cost difference between these two types of panels i mean are they big big a lot of how you think through panel pricing or quotes even come across you can get it down to the um, dollars per watt Uh so what you may see more is the balance of system cost savings um you can if the higher wattage panels even if you're paying a little bit more dollar per watt, um, you could have reduced racking, reduced footprint, reduced, you know, you, you mm-hmm. see that or maybe even reduced wiring, right, Michaela? It's probably less so than the racking cost. But you will see some balance of system cost savings if you could have a smaller number of panels out there. Um, sure. Now it's, you know, I think I kind of glossed over it and said, it's about the same footprint of a panel with higher wattage. It's not exactly the same footprint, right? Most of them are a little bit larger, but mm-hmm. in the scheme, relative scheme of everything, they're they're fairly close. So who has like the Cadillac of the panels that you would want to per- purchase and put on your system? Like, you know, who's these manufacturers? Like LG seems to be a name that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Are there other major companies or like, yeah, these guys are the the, you know, the ones that we recommend because, you know, best quality you know, less maintenance, you know, durability, gotta, whatever. Uh, I'll let Michaela maybe jump in on some of the technical part, but the the first thing I'm advise anyone to look at is if it's tier one. Yeah. And the first step there is tier one is actually done by third source. It's Bloomberg and it's, it is related to their bankability, not the actual technical aspects of the panel, but um, with all that, you know, it's kind of inherent that there's some technical and quality Oh, so it's a company backing, you know, performance capabilities of, you know, is the company really a stable, yeah, reputable firm? That's a really big part of it because it almost feels too good to be true, but there's a 25 year performance warranty on the panels. Oh, so we don't want these guys just like, you know, going out of business and we know it's going to service that aren't they? No, okay. so the bankability is important. And you know, it's like a growing and new industry. So you mentioned LG. That's a great example. We, um, we work with Vikram panels, we work with a number of panels, but what you will see is that the company could be multi-generations are around here for, for decades and solar panels aren't their core or solar panels may be a new new product line for them, but they have the backing um, in the history to, to make those warranty guarantees. Um, sure. Now I would caution like the tier one, it comes out every fiscal quarter and you wanna see somebody that's on it often or doesn't drop off that list. The other, um, when you look at some of the quality manufacturing, you have to take into account that sometimes it's it's not as much a pay to play, but you have to, it's a cost to get the audit done. So you'll see the large manufacturers may do it if they come out with a new product line, if they set up a new operating facility, but it's not something they do every single year. So if they were on it in 2017 and they're not on it now, that's not necessarily a bad sign. It just means they haven't done any significant changes to get the audit repeated um and then like with anything else you have ul certifications iso Mm -hmm. certifications i gotta imagine solar is going to be one of those things where eventually the cost of all of the equipment and everything is going to be more economical and feasible for people to really adopt it as a renewable energy at some point down the road i mean 
you know, greenhouse gas uh, impacts from essentially existing buildings in, in society makes up probably 10 to 15 percent of our greenhouse gas contribution. It's seen, at least that's some of the numbers I've heard. So if that's the case, solar seems to be like a really good option for driving down those greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Um, and I was curious to know, you know, it seems like solar is a really good idea for new construction opportunities and maybe lead certification support. Uh, do you get involved with those types of uh, projects versus existing buildings? Uh, maybe a little more complicated to retrofit. Your thoughts there? That's a good question. I'd say that bulk of our portfolio is actually retrofit. Um, a lot of okay. existing buildings. Um, and again, economy of scale helps that. So if we have to upgrade any of the electrical infrastructure. It can, it can be carried in the project where it'd be harder at a, a small site or a residential. You might run into that being the hurdle and cost prohibitive. And then for the new construction, um, exactly right. It's funny because you kind of hear in general, like lead is so whatever, right? I don't know. It's, it's no longer there, but we actually run into it quite a bit with architects and developers and uh, I think especially some universities really appreciate the LEED certified yeah. building uh -huh. still. So um, what we're noticing when I get kind of that theme of trends is that solar is starting to pop up more and more in alternates for new buildings. Um, definitely in the K through 12 and the higher ed space that it will be an alternate in a new building. I mean, we hope to see it just right into the bid docs, but even an alternate's good and um it can, it could come in right away where the pricing comes in, or it's, and we, you know, we try to preach this, but it's a strong contender for if uh, there's contingency dollars at the end, or if anything comes in under construction, which is rare, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. And some of our projects have come to fruition like that. So we did the health sciences building at Ball State University and and they had some contingency dollars and it was a great move because it's innovative and then it provides cost savings. Um, sure. No, that's, that's great. Well, we've learned a lot. Lead points. Not to jump ahead, but it yeah, is. You get your lead points, right. Did you work with Dan on that one? Dan Overby with the lead points uh, Ball State by any chance? Uh, and that, that specific project, but we're, we're talking through a lot of opportunities where they want some lead points or sustainability okay. is, is an that's initiative. Great. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, I, you know, I, I the more I see solar, uh, I, I think that this is like, you know, the one of the, the renewables that would really help us kind of help offset this greenhouse gas, uh, you know, climate change concerns that are out there in the more the more affordable it becomes, the, the more people will adopt it. And I think uh, the younger generation that's coming into you know, uh, of age, so to speak. Now they're looking at buying homes and things like that. They're going to start asking questions about, can I do this? I mean, is this something like, you know, and you talk, you kind of talked about the bookends, you know, the older generations like, well, you know, maybe I should just, you know, do something good now before I take off, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and at least leave something nice for someone else who is going to want it. And because they, they're passionate about it, they get more time to think about it. And they probably have a little more money. That's, the, you know, the money's not the big issue. They just want to do it because they want to do the right thing or good thing. Right. I mean, um, so as soon as that comes down, it'd be great. One thing I noticed was, um, it's not across the whole country, but in certain regions, even mm -hmm. like AppsRealtor.com and Zillow give a solar rating now. Oh, really? Okay. 
see like you know there'll be like walkability ratings or the school system ratings. Uh huh. Um, you're starting to see solar ratings come across, which I thought was interesting. Um, That's good. And then I think, you know, again we talk about it as it's one piece of the puzzle, but I think some strong points for solar, if it's done right, it's going to be a great add to solving this problem. So it, I would say, you know, it, it takes a footprint, takes up some real estate, but if you have the rooftop, if you have the warehouses, if you have the land, um, you know, there's obviously some key agricultural land that you don't want to take over for 20 or 30 years, but there's land that there's landfills now that have been capped for years, right? There's brownfields. There's a lot right, of opportunity right. that um, undeveloped land is great, right? If you, if you don't see value in it, it's a great use. I think the other, I mean, there's a lot of things we can go on. For yeah, no, you're right. But you're right. You know, I think, I think the more that uh, we can promote the solar as a, as a renewable and it becomes more affordable. Um, I think access to the information and people like, you know, you guys with PSG, you know, talk a little bit about your services as we wrap up here. What are you guys, what's your value proposition that you're really able to help uh, clients, you know, understand, you know, the value of, of, in the, you know, of going with the solar system I and mean, how do you walk them through the process? It sounds good. And I'm going to pause that for one second. I'll probably let Michaela walk through because she's early on, but the last thing I did want to say solar part of the puzzle is at the utility mm -hmm. level. So right. All these renewables um, store once storage is there, then you can kind of control when the production and consumption and all that is used. But until then you're going to influx the grid at different times and, one thing to keep in mind with solar, if you look at the production curves, it's often a time where energy is in high demand. So when you're talking about um, afternoons in the summer, it's a nice influx for the grid to have. So that that part, the production curve lends itself well to support the demand of our overall utility. Okay. Are there concerns from those utilities of having too much, uh, I guess you call it renewable penetration, I guess, you know, into the system? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think there always will be. And I think that's why it's got to be scaled up right and partnered mm -hmm. with with batteries. Um, gotcha. I think realistically, where we're at in the Midwest, we haven't hit that point of concern yet, right? It's just the drop in the water, the amount of renewables we have right. compared right. to the consumption in the grid. Um, but I'll let Michaela take, go back to your original question. I'll jump in if we need to. But, I, you know, this is a plug for my team or for counter across the country, but the due diligence and the amount of time we spend. Yeah, I would say that yeah. our benefit is how much upfront time we spend and um, how much we care about getting it right. You know, we mentioned here a few things like the, the physical space that's avail available, the versatility of the racking, the right panels for the job, the right inverter for the job, um, and, you know, making sure we look into the construction permits needed ahead of time. We want to make sure our projects don't have any surprises. Um, so I think our big value is how much due diligence we spend up front in the project. So do you help them understand their, um, their credits and their, their, you know, yeah. their, you know, rebate uh, aspect of the purchase? Because to me, that's going to be a big like decision point. Like, okay, I can, I can understand like the engineering design is great, but like how much yeah. can I actually, you know, help, the investment part, part here. So do you walk them through that stage too? Oh yeah, we do a whole preliminary, we do a whole analysis of 
um, the benefits for that specific project, the credits that they'll receive based on our design um, and how it plays into the payback and the return of the investment. Oh, that's and, great. And Sean, we really become a partner with the client ongoing. So we spend, uh, you know, specifically, I mean, I have a, a whole team of specifically Michaela and I spend a lot of time school boards and you walk them through even um, how your utility bill looks pre and post solar. I mean, mm -hmm. for, for a lot of um, these schools, this is their legacy for that superintendent and school board doing a project at this level. And you want to make sure you can understand. I mean, some utility bills are as confusing as medical bills, right? It's it's hard to navigate through it. So we, we walk through that. Um, something else we do um, is there is that revenue stream opportunity. So there is an SREC market, a solar renewable or energy certificate market. And a lot of our public institutions, you know, they are budget conscious and crunched and looking for ways they can invest in the students and faculty and facilities. So having that revenue stream, which then the buyers out there, the Fortune 500s or the utilities that have either um, renewable standards they have to meet or mm -hmm. um, pledges in where they've put themselves at. And we'll even see it with commercial and ag. I mean, there's some programs across the country where you have to commit to, you know, 15 years in Illinois, you have to commit to 15 years of selling your racks here in Indiana. They don't sell as high, but you have flexibility. You can turn it on and off where you could retire your rack, which means you get to keep the environmental benefit CO2 offset, or you can sell it and you still get the cost savings on your utility bill from the reduced kilowatt hours used, but you are pulled in a revenue stream by somebody else claiming that environmental benefit. So you may have, a commercial entity that's pledged to be whenever it could be maybe hundred percent by 2050 or 2030, they'll likely sell their credits right now, um, reduce the years of payback, and then they can switch it to retiring them and taking the, the CO2 offset. So with anything, there's always that, there's always some, I don't know if you could say some moments of arbitrage or you can look into just the commodity trading of it that can come into play. Well, that's great. Well, Sounds like uh, if, uh, if you're uh, uh, somebody looking for solar as an option, this sounds like you guys are the, the one of the companies out there that they need to reach out to. Uh, and and so PSG Energy Group is is offering these services from you know evaluating the ROI to the engineering design to permitting to you know helping you figure out what your you know that you know the credits you're going to receive are. So. It's really great. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad you guys were able to come onto the show today and kind of talk uh, solar and, and what you guys can do. Um, and I think one of the things I'll do for you guys is uh, um, on my website, I'm going to put up your uh, contact information. So people, when they get to the website, they can, you know, connect to you guys, send you questions. Uh, and, and I think that'd be really good for you. Um, I hope the listeners can, you know, dive into what PSG offers. Uh, and, and sounds like it's a little more than just solar too. You've got a couple other uh, sister companies that can help uh, mm -hmm. in the equation as well. So um, as we wrap up, uh, really, really appreciate you guys coming on today. Um, kind of running out of time for the today's yeah. episode. So if we need to down the road, maybe we bring you back on and then have another conversation, but uh, you know, good luck uh, with uh, all that's, that's going on. And um you know, looking forward to seeing how solar is making an impact in helping address climate change. Yeah, no, Sean, we really appreciate you having us today. We, uh, we enjoyed the time and the discussions. And, and like you said, um, 
any of your listeners can reach out to us and we'd love to to help them navigate the first steps. Yeah, no, this is good. Well, looks, thanks for coming on. And uh, Michaela and Jennifer, thank you for your time. And we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you for having me. I want to thank our guests, Jennifer Merslack, the president of PSG Energy Group, and Michaela Bell for coming on to the show today. If you want to learn more about solar energy systems and the PSG Energy Group, you can check out their website at www.psgenergygroup.com. We'll also put a link to their contact information on my website. To access all the Environmental Transformation podcast episodes, videos, and other resources about our sponsors and guests, check out my new website at www.seankgrady.com. You can also listen to us on most of the major podcast networks, And also, be sure to follow me on Instagram and on the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. And finally, I'd really appreciate if you would leave a review on my website or within your podcast app about today's episode as it helps elevate the podcast profile on the various platforms. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. So thanks for listening. And until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today. (music) 